Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is a podcast where we spent disintegrating intriguing characters from across the comedy world and worlds of theatre and entertainment that inspire comedians like you and me to live this comedy journey on our own terms. Now today's guest is a proper um, margarita pizza or pepperoni pizza that you'll get in Papa John's. He is a real cool guy. He has a very unique name like what you were supposed to call him Nick Coppin, but some people call him Nick Coffin, some call it Nick Copan, Nick Copy Coffee Can. They call him all sorts of nicknames. He's a man who's traveled across the world, like the Pokemon song, to different countries and smashed gigs. He's a man that's taught comedy to lots of different people across the world. He's been in comedy over the, a decade. He's like one of those people who's been there and done it. He has so many stories to tell, and you're going to absolutely love, love him. Please welcome. Nick Coppin. Hey, how's it going, dude? How's it going, world out there? Yeah, all good, mate. How did you find the intro? Did it did it do you justice? I, I think it it certainly did justice to the people that get my name wrong. I'll tell you that, and you got it right, so that that's good. Uh, but yes, I have been called a number of different things. I've been, as you said, I've been I've had been listed as Coffin, uh, Coppins, Copping. Uh, and, you know, when people introduce me, they say Copan to make it sound a bit more classy. But no, it's just Nick Coppin. And that's it. Sounds a bit like something from a Dickensian Victorian novel. Coppin. It's Coppin. But yeah, so you got it right, mate. So thank you. You did it justice. And I'm going to do this one thing, OK? Uh, here we go. I've got my soundboard, Nick. Here we go. Did you hear that? No, I didn't. What okay. was that? I'll do it again. That's how I feel. Well, good. Well, thanks. Yeah, loads of rounds of applause. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thank you. I feel like I've got a standing ovation and we're not even at the end yet. Okay. <laughs> now, um, you seemed a bit shocked by that. You were like, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> but So you've been in comedy for quite a while. You've been across different parts of the world, like, so you've got a mixed background of being Barbadosian and English and from Northwest London. Um, like so like how did you get into comedy and like what was it about your childhood that led into it were you the class clown that said what oh, yes, son teacher what are you fucking doing oh yeah and you had everyone <laughs> laugh and then that that led you to being a comedian or was it like yo fam you better let me on the stage yeah or it's business well i it was nothing like that whatsoever i'm afraid uh, and uh, although you got Nick Coppin right, I'm, I'm not sure when it comes to your Caribbean islands, it, you spot Barbadosian. Uh, uh, it would be Barbadian uh, or Bajan. Okay, Barbadian. Sure. Or Bajan, Bajan, that's it. Bajan, yeah. Bajan for sure or Barbadian. But uh, well done. But yes, that is, that is where my uh, father is from in the West Indies. Um, I've always lived in uh, England or been based in England. I've obviously spent many a... Uh, a month and if you add it up many a year overseas but i've always been based in the uk in london mostly um but now in brighton on the south coast so sunny down here hopefully i'll get to the beach later on but yeah school i um i went to wickham primary school in neesden and then i went to neesden high school in neesden so schooling wise it was literally just always a 10 15 minute walk from the house um but what inspired me i was not the class clown no, actually, I, I really wasn't. And I think maybe that in itself is what led me to try and be funny, I suppose. I mean, I never had ideas as a kid of, of being a stand-up comedian. Um, I always wanted to be a comic book artist because um, I was always a fan of superheroes, Spider-Man being my favourite. And so I used to, used to draw Spider-Man and the Hulk and, you know, superheroes fighting. Uh, and then I got in try about my late teens, mid-teens, 15, I decided I didn't want to do the drawing comic books anymore because I found out that actually it's not all fun and games. It's like even comic books, you know, you've got to go to, uh, you know, art college and university study this and be really... I mean, these comic book artists, like, even back then, they were, like, shit hot, man. They were drawing these great, amazing pictures really quickly. And you had to learn about all this perspective. And, and it just... I think it started in secondary school, I kind of... Like you'd go to, you you know, to, to galleries and have to, you know, do this and that. And it was like, oh, I didn't enjoy the, the the drawing anymore like I did as a kid. So I kind of changed my mind about that. 
uh, and wanted to be an actor. Now, I'm, I'm sort of cutting forward a little bit here, but the reason I wanted to be an actor, and you can call me as sad as you like, was because at about the age of 15, Neighbours was a big TV show, and I kind of really fell in love with Kylie Minogue at the time. Mm. And, I, and I, you know, people have crushes on, on um, a, you know, actresses and whatever, and, you know, you never get to meet them. I thought, well, if you're ever going to meet someone like Kylie Minogue, you've got to be an actor. So I looked into doing... Uh, you know, going to like drama school and stuff. But again, that was like art college. It was like, didn't appeal to me. It's like, you know, if you were uh, in a box of chocolates, which chocolate would you be and all that? And, you know, be a tree and all that rubbish. So I thought, now nah, that's it. I'm sure it's not exactly like that, but that the, the thought of that just bored me. So I thought, nah, 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 I don't want to do that. Uh, but then I found out that, you know, at the time, because Eddie Murphy was quite a big movie star, wasn't he? And I found out that people like him and Richard Pryor and people like that, uh, were comedians before they got into acting. So that's where I got the idea of being uh, a comedian when I was about 15, 16, but just didn't do anything about it, um, you know, because I didn't know how to go about it. I was I went to the comedy store when I was, you know, in my late teens to check that out. But, yeah, it was not something I had confidence to do. Uh, and then eventually, like, uh, a couple of mates at work um, thought it was funny, and they just, you know, I was working on London Transport at the time at London Underground, at Baker Street Station. I was a signalman at one point, but I got booted out for cocking everything up. And so I was at, the, at Baker Street Station and a couple of staff members like and friends on London Underground were like, yeah, you're really funny, you should write comedy. And that sort of gave me the encouragement to you know, start looking at Time Out and looking at new act shows around London and get into it that way. And then I started doing you know, little new, new act spots around London and just started from there. But what I think set me off on the journey of, of trying to be the funny guy. Because I remember when I was at 11 or 12 at school, you know, it's like that classic thing, isn't it? You know, you're not really happy about some things at school and, you know, you get bullies. I was never really bullied, but um, it was as being a Spider-Man fan, I read the comic books. Now, I don't know if you know much about Spider-Man, but whenever he's fighting these superpowered beings and people like the Hulk or the Rhino or the Green Goblin, you know, and, and his life is always really tough. Spider-Man, he's never, he never used to have any money. And, you know, his relationship's breaking up and he's got his boss at work's a pain in the backside. But he was always cracking jokes. He'd be fighting these really powerful, you know, villains and he's always cracking jokes. And, you know, and I thought that's really cool. You know, life's tough. Uh, things bad happen in life. But if you can, like, have a positive attitude and, and make wisecracks and, you know, be, be the funny guy, you know, then that's cool. And I think that's what kind of at the age of about 11 or 12 inspired by Spider-Man, I started to become a bit more of a wisecracky, fun kid. And then that evolved itself eventually later on into the comedy stuff, I suppose. And that's kind of what how I got into it, really. I and mean, it's not the whys and the wherefores, what really makes us do comedy, but it's certainly how I got into it. And that was my journey to starting comedy, I think. Oh, okay. That's, that's and that's, yeah, he, he was known for, I used to watch the TV series and he's, he's always cracking the jokes and it's yeah it, it, it lightened the entertainment didn't it with his wisecracks oh yeah that's the sort of character spider-man is and i think you know they've, they've tried to bring that into the movies tom holland sort of like you know has embodied it a little bit more that the sassy sort of cheeky wisecracking um spider-man andrew garfield was good at that too but yeah in the comic books he was always cracking jokes despite his serious life and and problems so yeah it was that sort of you know, it's not like I'm I'm like Peter Parker or anything, but it's just having that attitude towards life that, you know, shit happens. Things are tough, you know, and you've just got to, you know, try and laugh your way through it. And I think maybe a lot more people uh, could do a bit bit better or feel better if they, you know, sort of made jokes and, and, and had a, a lighthearted look on uh, or take on life. But obviously, as we know now that there's a lot of people that get very offended by things. And I get that. But I think, you know, people use humor and jokes whether it be comedians or not comedians they use it as a coping mechanism and i've said this to people before it's like don't judge someone because they're laughing their way through this or laughing at that or making fun of that that's how people cope with with basically what essentially can be um a, a very tough life and a very tough time for them and what's going on around them so you know almost let them have that outlet if you like because it's important i think hmm. It, and it, you, it's but what one thing that is funny like i spoke to like comedians sometimes when they haven't got the experience the skill to do it they make it as therapy rather than what's it called being funny and how does someone avoid that 
Well, I think that that's a very important point. I think that's that the problem is that people don't have the, the, the required skills to be able to tackle some subjects. Because I've had many conversations about, obviously, about jokes you should do and shouldn't. Now, I don't do really dark humour. I don't certainly don't do things like jokes about paedophilia and, and rape jokes and all that. I mean, that's pretty dark humour. But most of the time, even when you do jokes like that, it's usually the, the, the perpetrator of such crimes is the butt of the joke. No, very rarely, um, or you know, no decent comedian worth their salt is going gonna, is gonna to make jokes about the victim. Uh, and even if they do, they're kind of making themselves the villain. So in many ways, they are the butt of the joke because it's just this ignorant, foolish person on stage. But I've had many a discussion about, I don't think there are many good comedians that, that know their trade that make offensive jokes that don't have some kind of point or some kind of twist. But you do get new comedians. I think they don't understand. Like, for example, I mean, the classic is Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks was very angry and he did dark material, but he was very clever. You know, a lot of dark comedians or people that, that tackle dark subjects, they're very skilled comedians. They know what they're talking about. But then you get these people that don't I don't know, get the nuance. They don't they haven't got the skill and they go on stage. They want to deal with these 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 topics, whatever they are. Um, I mean, obviously, at the moment, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, trans issues and people want to tackle these subjects. But they don't really know how to do it. They don't have the skill. Uh, and, and it just comes off as just really offensive and ignorant. But but put these words in the right hands or the right mouth, so to speak, and you can talk about any subject. Um, and again, it's like the old saying, isn't it? Offense is taken, not given. I mean, admittedly, I am fascinated by why people like, say, Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais choose to um, tackle those subjects in the way that they do, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't necessarily deal with these, these, these issues. But it, I think in the right hands or the right mouth, you can joke about anything. Hmm. It's now you've, you've been in comedy for a while, like you've spent most of it in London, but I mean, a lot of people was telling me that in London, things were very different. Like Jeff Whiting said that you used to have to stick posters up, like handmade. There was no designers or anything. Um, like they'd say that, when you were gigging, you had to call people up and then you had to, there's no booking system or anything. You had to call a lot of people up. There's yeah, a lot the good old shows. <laughs> Picking the phone up, man. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, now, now people just message and they don't text and they what they WhatsApp. They, there's no there's no calling anymore. There's no conversation, man. What's going oh, on? Tinder? That is absolutely correct. I mean, and that, maybe that's why there's a lack of connection. Maybe that's one of the issues that's, that's happening. And it's funny you mentioned Jeff White because obviously Jeff, was one of those guys that was responsible for a lot of people getting their first paid gigs. Uh, in fact, he was responsible for me getting my first hundred pound gig, actually. Well, Whoa. weirdly, well, yes, he was actually, it's weird. There's a, a, a little story about that. He was the first person to book me for a hundred pound gig. It was all the way down in Truro and I lost money because there was problems with a car blowout and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> that, it was, oh, it was terrible because we were meant to have an overnight stay, but one of the comedians had to be back for a TV thing the next morning. So I had to drive all the way to Truro after an early shift at work. Um, so I had to pick up the comedians, drive to Truro. On the way back, there were comedians that needed to be picked up from Plymouth. So I had to go an hour out of our way, an hour back onto the motorway. And then I had a blowout uh, and it was like, and on top of that, because at, like, at the time, I had this car with low profile tyres and, and it, it basically cracked the alloy. The alloys had been discontinued. So I basically just had to get rid of the car. So the hundred pound gig cost me like hundreds of pounds. Um, but anyway, so Jeff gave my first hundred pound gig in Truro. Um, and, but then before I did that gig, Hills Jago gave me a gig where I, was, I think I was the MC and it was a door split and that the door split paid me 105 pounds. So Jeff was the first one to book me for a hundred pound bit gig, but not the first one to pay me a hundred pounds for a gig. That was Hills Jago. But, um, oh. but yeah, Jeff gave a lot of people their first paid gigs. And, you know, you drove up and down the country as an open mic spot as the driver. Uh, and it's like, yeah, Jeff. And it's like, yes, we need it. We need a London driver. We need a London driver for this one. And that sort of thing. And I used to have conversations with, with Jeff on the phone. I pick the phone up and go, yeah, can I do that gig and that gig? Now it's all emails and, and, and social media, isn't it? But yeah, it's funny when you think back. When I start, started doing gigs and paid gigs, it was a lot of it was on the phone. And in, you had like, and also you'd open up Time Out magazine. Time Out magazine <clears throat> had this huge section on comedy and had all the open mic nights 
they'd have interested acts should call and a phone number. And it's like none of this send a video, an email. No, man, it was like pick the phone up and ring a number and speak to someone. So that was, uh, I do remember one of my funniest, um, uh, and uh, the person will remain nameless, but it was like someone offered me um, to go and do a 10 minute spot in Yeovil, which is obviously miles from London. And uh, uh, it wasn't a paid spot, but I think maybe petrol, petrol was covered. And the person actually sold the gig to me like this. They said, uh, "Yes, it's uh, it's a long way to go. It's not uh, it's not it's not it's not really any money in it, but we'll try and cover your petrol." But I can assure you, when you get there, the gig is wall to wall muff. There's women everywhere. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, that was like at the time. That was like it was hilarious because you imagine that it, now booking someone based on the fact that this gig has got loads of pretty women and is wall-to-wall muff. He actually said that on the phone. I mean, which obviously I thought was funny at the time, but I don't think he'd get away with that now. I didn't do the gig anyway. I I couldn't. I I was working, so I I sadly didn't get to go and see the wall-to-wall muff. (laughs) That's not right, man. He could have... Now they'll they'll send you pictures. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, those were the days, man. You pick up the phone. Oh, yeah, it it was weird. But as you say, that was what it was like in in London, you know, and this and you literally you could put like a gig, like a new at night or whatever on it, you know, in time out. And you put a couple of posters in the pub, like you said, Jeff said, and you'd get a crowd. Now you can't. You've got to be doing Facebook advertising. You've got to do this. You'd maybe send someone out to the flyers. I mean, even the flyer thing doesn't work much these days, uh, even at fringes. But, yeah, it was like things have changed massively as to how 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 gigs are, are, are booked by the comedians, how they're sold to the audiences. It's yeah, it's been a massive change. Um, and, you know, with regards to getting gigs now, it's so hard for people to get gigs um, because like, there's a massive weight. And this is all this bring a buddy pay to play stuff. I like to think I was around in what I call the golden age of open spots. It's like when alternative comedy first kicked off, there were so few comedians around that like, like anyone that was doing alternative comedy back then, what, 35 years ago, whenever it was, um, they would just like get paid gigs straight away. Um, and now it's really hard to get um, free gigs, let alone paid gigs. But I was in this period of time for a few years where I would turn up to these little pubs in London and all your mates would be there and, you know, that you knew from the circuit and that you, that the guy that ran the gig, uh, either you knew him or her. And they go, oh, yeah, I'll squeeze you on. Don't worry, I'll put you on for a 10-minute spot. Or it's like, oh, sorry, I can't get you on tonight. Come back next week and I'll put you on. Or give me a call and I'll put you in. And then we just all just turn up there at these gigs. And we'd either do a spot or not. And then we'd all have a few drinks afterwards at the pub or in the West End, uh, uh, the place called the Phoenix Bar we used to go to quite a lot. It was really social. And nobody really had this idea of making a career. We all wanted to get paid gigs, obviously. And we wanted to be playing things like jonglers and the comedy store and whatnot but the whole tv panel show wasn't a thing so you never had this like oh i want to be on tv i'm going to be this and i'm going to be that you just had these ideas of i'm hoping to get paid by jonglers or hoping to go and do a show at the end at the um at the edinburgh fringe um but because there was no real career path to tv no one really took it that seriously i mean it was just like great fun we used to turn up see open spots we knew, have a few drinks, have a laugh, try some material, then just go and have a few drinks afterwards. It was just it was just a real fun time. It wasn't anyone getting all het up about stuff. No one was like, oh, why is that person on TV and I'm not? It's like, nah, man, it was just like, it was great fun. It was a really good time. Oh, and now it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely, well, I suppose things are always shit in a different way, but yeah, um, but now it is. I mean, I wouldn't want to be a new act. Now, I know all of that bring a buddy stuff and, and you hear things of pay to play. And I just see like lots of new acts and they come and do courses that I do and, and they ask for advice. And sometimes I don't know what to, to tell them with regards to getting gig. You just got to put yourself out there. But it is really it's a lot. Like you said, it, it's a lot shitter now. It's not as easy to get on. I mean, back then you might have to wait like three months for a spot at the comedy cafe or a 10 minute spot at the comedy store. But now people are waiting like weeks months for just like you know a new at night down the road it's like and then it's bring a buddy in london and yes yeah, like you said it's a bit shit mate <laughs> so, yeah but my yeah when we did it, it was just so much more social and it was a lot easier to get on at gigs you could be gigging like every night of the week if you wanted you could be doing two or three gigs in the west end if you really wanted to um but now it just seems like, sadly a lot harder for people to get on hmm. but what's it what's so you've traveled quite a bit in comedy now mm-hmm. and like um 
what's it like in play in Asia? Because you've been across the globe and like, what's it called? I speak to Kevin Jane, I spoke to Riza and they like, they said that it's only been maybe the last maybe four or five years where people, there's only maybe like 10 comedians in Malaysia that make a full time living in it. But mm -hmm. it seems like a lot of them are faced with tougher situations where they do pay gigs and get challenged a lot quicker than people back here. Yeah, I mean, that is the thing. I mean, <clears throat> traveling around the world, I mean, that's the thing about the UK circuit. It, in many ways, it's harder to get pay gigs, I suppose, a bit like a bit like in America, because there's so much comedy and it's great. The UK, especially in London and lots of cities and places around London and, and the UK, sorry, are great because there's so many gigs. But at the same time, with that comes so much more competition. And now every, every the, the world and his wife wants to be a, a comedian nowadays, it seems, there's so many. But you go to places like um, Kuala Lumpur, it's easy maybe for them to get, because there's so few comedians, uh, it's easier for them to maybe get paid spots. A bit like what it was when the alternative comedian uh, the, uh, circuit started here. It was a lot easier to get paid spots because there weren't as many people around. Now there's a lot more competition. It's a, it's a buyer's market. You really, uh, it's harder to get paid paid work now and be a paid comedian. And it's the same when you go to any scene. Like, I mean, even if you look at um, places like even even Scotland, um, it, it seems a lot easier. Is probably the, the the wrong word to use, but yeah. like Scottish comedians can will be on like BBC Scotland and things like that. Whereas to get a comedian that starts in the London circuit, there's so many comedians around London, even places like Manchester and Birmingham, that it's harder to stand out. Whereas if you're a good act in a smaller scene, you'll stand out a lot quicker and you'll get paid because they want to, like the Crack House and other things in, say, Kuala Lumpur, they, they really want to put comedians on. And if they're selling tickets, they pay these comedians where it will take, you know, sometimes years before you get a first paid gig over here. So it's a lot easier in those, those scenes to get paid stuff. Because hmm. everyone's desperate for that, that, that small, that big cherry on the pie and being like the Apollo, all, all that and all that hoopla and... Well, that's the thing. I mean, now, I mean, in order to, to try and sell these gigs, it's like must have TV credits. And you look at like advertisements now, it's like a 200 pound gig on a Friday. Oh, we want someone with TV credits. You're like, what, really? Like that's that's like circuit money. That's not TV money. You know, when I, you know, yeah. when, when people are getting paid uh, gigs like like 200 pounds, like a proper, you know, circuit headliner, it wasn't TV credits. It was just like, yeah, that's that was a, a, a circuit fee. And now it's like TV because it's just so hard and people want TV credit people to, to you know, to to sell their gig. Um, and everyone wants to be on TV because now you have to be on, on, on TV to sell. You. It was at a time where you had to have, um, you know, a really good edit, Edinburgh show or be really good on the circuit to get TV. Now you've got to be on TV to have a good Edinburgh show. It seems the other way around. But but, yeah, it's 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 really hard. And I think what also doesn't help is there's almost like a bottleneck being created, because if you look at. I mean, obviously, some people have left and retired, whether it be COVID or years ago when comedy started to pay less money and they went back to teaching or whatever job they had before. But you've got a lot of headline acts on the circuit now, proper great headline acts like um, not people like Jeff Innocent, Mike Gunn, people like that. And they're, they're obviously still doing all of the, the headline spots and rightly so because they're excellent comedians. But they're, but they're still there. They're not going anywhere, and why should they? You know, they're they're these great acts on the circuit. But now you've got like, you know, underneath that, you'll have, you know, I don't know people like uh, people like myself that aren't up there uh, as as the, the headline acts that they're considered to be in this country. And so there's this like, there's me there, and then there's other people, and there's all these people trying to get into comedy, and it's like it's hard for people to to break through, which is why I think you've got to look for other opportunities, which is why. I started going to do like comedy festivals on like, like uh, Edinburgh, obviously, but then Melbourne, Adelaide, um, and even things like the Brighton Fringe, and then traveling around Europe to do gigs and, and stopping off in Asia on the way to Australia and having a little uh, a little tour of Asia, popped over to um, Canada once and did some stuff in the States. But that's the thing. It's like trying to find these, these opportunities and create these opportunities for yourself because there is a massive, I think, bottleneck on the circuit and it's harder when somebody obviously breaks through onto to TV for whatever reason they get onto TV and then everyone wants to book them as well as all the headliners. So there's this massive loads of people want to do comedy, but there's not all the gigs there to support them. And especially when Jonglers closed, you know, there was like all these comedians that are now earning a lot less money doing the, the smaller clubs. Um, so, yeah, that's a real a real issue in this country at the moment. I don't say it's a bad thing. It's just uh, loads of people doing comedy. Um, and that's the way it is. And COVID's pushed it even further. 
Well, yeah, I suppose it has. I mean, I think the comedy circuit and comedy has changed in ways that we we haven't even fully we haven't fully begun to understand yet. Like um, I was talking to a friend of of mine yesterday, and he always has sell out shows. He's a great act, and he was just saying that like you know even his shows um, are, and he's like you know known he does TV and stuff. And he said it's hard to to sell. It, it's harder to sell stuff in Edinburgh. And we don't know if that's because people are buying more last minutes they're worried about covid coming back is it because they've got less money because of covid they've got less money because of the the cost of living crisis but i think things have changed because at least before it's like okay jonglers uh closed down uh so there were less people doing those gigs they're doing other gigs and there's not as much money because of that and there was a bit of a recession when cameron was in and that affected it and then there's a lot more tv comedy now, so people either stay in and watch TV or they just want to see people that are on TV at live clubs. Um, but now COVID's happened. At least you could kind of see why the circuit had changed back then. But now with COVID, it's like it's changed again so much. And there was nothing we could do about it during COVID. And now I think people are qu not quite sure why or what things are, are, are going wrong. And they don't quite know why. And it's like you said, COVID changed it massively. And we're just like, you know, we're all having to to, to I don't know, reinvent ourselves or what we do against some people having to start from scratch. It's a, it's a strange time. Now with all these things going on, how has like you teaching comedy helped with like, obviously in monetary terms, but also be a comedian? <laughs> oh, it's weird how I got into that as well, because I had a lot of people that were doing courses, like people like Lo Logan Murray, Jill Edwards, Amuse Moose were doing a comedy course. Laughing Horse, who I work closely with, uh, were doing comedy courses. And I had no desire to do comedy courses and teach comedy. So I just want to get on with doing comedy. And I think people should find their own way into comedy. Um, and so I had no desire or, or will to, to want to be part of that, that process. Most people that I knew when I was a new actor did do some kind of course. I didn't. Um, but one year, I think it was about four years ago at the Edinburgh Fringe, because <clears throat> a guy called Jay Sodegar, who also works closely with uh, Laughing Horse, and Jojo Sutherland, a Scottish comedian who works with Laughing Horse sometimes, they would teach the courses in Edinburgh. But, but Jojo, because of her schedule, couldn't teach the Laughing Horse comedy courses. And Jay was only, uh, could only be there for two weeks. So Alex Petty said, will you do these three courses at the Edinburgh Fringe? And I had to get up like really, I was doing like six or seven shows a day, every day. And this was the last week of the Fringe. So I was already knackered. And I'm like, oh, all right, I'll do them. Oh, oh duh, they nearly killed me, mate, I'll tell you. But I got up at like eight in the morning to go and do these courses. And, uh, and I saw it took me a little while to get my head around what exactly I needed to do with the courses. Um, but I did it because basically Laughing Horse asked me, I don't know, for a favour. It was more money, which was great. But I said, OK, Alex, yeah, I'll do that. Jay, so I did it. But then I, I sort of realised a few things from it. Firstly, that not a lot of people, not most people that do comedy courses don't actually want to be comedians. They just want to kind of either find out, learn about the process. It's either a present that was bought for them. Uh, they, they, they want to tick it off a bucket list or it's for like confidence in work presentations. So I'd say about only about a third or so of people that come on the courses that I've been part of and the, one that, the ones that I do now actually want to be comedians. But I found it was quite fascinating, not just giving those people confidence in, in life and in comedy, but I learned more about myself because when I was doing the courses with Laughing Horse and Jay and other people, and even now, <clears throat> I've sort of like, I've learned about things that I know that I didn't even know I knew. Like they'll ask me questions and I'll answer it and I'll go, oh yeah, that, that, that. And I'll go, oh, and I'm like, I didn't even know I knew that. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and Jay Sodegar, when he was like putting things across to the students when I used to work with him, and I was like, yeah, I do that. Yeah, I do that. I didn't even realize I did it. Do you know what I mean? I just learned it over years. And then it was a case of then just like taking what I knew and, you know, just channeling it in that way to teach other people. And also I, I tell them when I do my courses, I like pass on like funny stories because there's bits where you sort of talk to them about how to connect with an audience. And I do that by a way of telling them all these stories of gigs that went great and gigs that went shit. And it's really funny because they're getting funny stories too. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating, the whole thing, because it made me understand that, you know, that I knew more about comedy than I actually knew myself. I just did things. I just went on stage. I went around the world and I just did comedy. But then I started teaching the courses and I realized that I knew more than I thought I knew, which was a, a learning process for me in itself, which was fascinating. 
Uh, and something else that I learned is that we can all have what's known as imposter syndrome. Like there are some gigs I get weirdly nervous at. And I'm like, oh, my God, am I good enough to do this gig? And who told me I was good at this job? That sort of thing. We all get it. Right. And I, we can doubt ourselves. But what when it comes to the courses, you get so many people that go, oh, I could never get on stage and make people laugh. And I said, look, trust me, you do my two day course or my three day, whatever it is, the course, the day course, whatever. I will get you to a place where you're on stage and you're confident and good enough to get some laughs. And I have undoubting, unflinching confidence in that I can do that. Now, I may sometimes sometimes doubt myself as a comedian, but I don't doubt myself in getting people from never having done comedy to getting them on stage. And I can't turn them into uh, Richard Pryor, <laughs> but I am, I, I've got confidence. If you come on my course, you will get on that stage. You'll feel comfortable on that stage and you will get laughs. And I, I do have confidence in that. So it's, it's, it's made me more confident as a comedian, as, as someone that can pass on uh, information and get people on stage. But also it's, it's again, it's told me and, and taught me that I know a lot more about comedy than I thought I did. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey, the courses. And you taught comedy in Malaysia as well, is that right? I, I did, yeah. And that was quite interesting because what, what happened was, because I, I, I can't remember if I spoke to Rizal or he came to me, I can't remember who approached who, but there was talk about me doing some um, workshops and, and courses at the crack house. Um, and obviously we talked about it and then he sort of sold it as it, I think it was this, was it a two day thing or a one day? I can't remember exactly how many days it went for. Um, Cause the first gigs I did was in, in uh, courses I did was actually, I did some workshops in Darwin, a friend who I knew from comedy. So that's the first time I actually did it. But then I started doing the laughing horse bun. Then because I was doing these courses, um, I did some at the crack house. And it's bizarre because normally we have like, I don't know, so anywhere between five and 15 people on a course. And, you, you know, you come up with way, you know, you come up with ways to, you know, to to come up with material and, and then, you know, how to edit that. And so you'd have a small group to work with. I did this one at the crack house and like there were about 45 people turned up for this workshop. And it was like I had never done anything like that before. And I think what it was that people did, people came, there were like people that had never done comedy before. There were people that had done comedy for a little while that wanted to advance. And then there were people that almost treated it like a show. They almost turned up to watch me do um, a workshop with people. And it was really bizarre. And obviously I couldn't go through everybody. So I had to pick certain people like you do this exercise, you do that exercise, you do that. So it was really weird. It was picking people out of this audience and then most of the audience just because I'd say it's about people getting up to take part in stuff. And like, oh, no, no, I just want to watch. But and this is a game where I learned fascinating. And this maybe feeds into what happened recently with the crack house. But just fascinating what you learn about people. Um, I, I when I was doing the course, one of the things you'll do in the course is like you get people ranting about something and then you'll get funny things out of that. And there was a woman got on stage. And she was dressed in, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of traditional sort of Muslim. I'm not sure, you know, the one where you can see the face, the hijab, the hijab. Um, and she got up on stage and she comes across as quite timid. And I said, right, well, I need you to rant about something. And she'd been through a divorce and she started ranting about this divorce. And it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe this woman, this Muslim woman in a hijab was ranting about her ex-husband and she was calling him this and that and it was like it really took me by surprise um but it was fascinating that all of these different types of people like and she was like a, 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 um, a an islamic female woman ranting on stage and it was like this was just brilliant you can get people like that into comedy and being funny on stage in that way and it was like this i just thought it was brilliant and uh and i had such a great time i think i did a couple of times with, with Rizal. And they were all they were all fascinating, all of them, all of the courses I've done with him and other people. Again, a learning process for me as well as them. Is the so people often say on the podcast that it doesn't matter where you're from, like comedy's comedy, and if you're funny, you're funny. How much of that is true? Because you're someone that's been there and been across the globe. How much is like humor related to different regions and different countries, and how much of it is universal? Oh, I think. As I said, I think you can joke and find humor in any situation if you if you come at it from the right angle and having the right attitude. But it does it does change. I mean, for example, I mean, that incident that's happened at the crack house now with that woman on stage and and seeing that she's disrespected. I mean, what she did wasn't funny anyway. I don't know what her intention was. 
but it was just like, that's not even funny. Um, but obviously, and somewhere like that, you'll make some jokes about um, Islam or whatever, then you're going to come under some serious fire. I mean, over here, you make some jokes about Christianity, and even in front of Christians, they might get upset, but you're not going to get the same sort of responses in the UK making fun of Christianity that you are, say, in Malaysia making jokes about Islam. And those are the sort of the fundamental differences between with that, that sort of what might be called offensive humour is, is those attitudes. And I, I read a lot of the comments um, on, on like social media about what's happening at the crack house at the moment. And I was really surprised that even in, a country, in places like Kuala Lumpur and, and in, in Malaysia, that people are, are still so, um, I don't know what's the right word, I don't know, just oh, angry, I suppose, about someone just making what is essentially a silly joke or what we would see as a silly joke. And it's amazing how, even when you're joking about serious topics over here, what you can get away with. And from region to region, things are so different. Um, and like Australia, for example, is, is great because if there's any country that has the same or a very similar sense of humor to Britain, it's Australia. You get on stage, you take the piss out of them, they take the piss out of you. It's all a bit of banter, mate. You know what I mean? It's all paying each other out, that sort of thing. Um, but obviously, there are still certain things like if you start making jokes um, about, I don't know, that might be considered misogynist or certain jokes that you can't say. But then you go to somewhere like Kuala Lumpur. And I, the first time I was there, all of the comedians before I went, I went on and I was on doing the closing spot and they were all like making fun of um, the, the Indian communities, the Chinese communities. And they were all like proper like, having a go in what if you did that sort of humour in the UK or Australia, People are, oh, my God, that's racist. But they were doing what you would call racist jokes. But everyone was kind of in on it. The, the audience was full of, like, people of Indian heritage, Chinese heritage, Malay heritage, and they were all just ripping into each other. And I was a bit worried. So I'm like, I don't, if that's the sort of humour they want, I don't do that. I mean, luckily, I went on, and it was almost like, I suppose, a breath of fresh air. It was something a bit different. But I don't do that. But I was a bit worried, like, oh, my God, if that's the sort of humour they want. But as I say, it's like the attitude towards maybe start making jokes about, say, Islam, in Kuala Lumpur is very frowned upon, obviously, right? But then you can go on and you can make fun of Chinese people, Indian people, Malay people, obviously English and American people, but you could not do that sort of thing in the UK or Australia. So it's, it's, it's fascinating what you can get away with and what you find, you know, you've got to like look at finding those, those areas that you can, you can tap into, that those boundaries you can push uh, in different areas. And I found that because people say, well, what don't you change your, your the sort of humor you do? And I'm like, nah, I mean, even in, in Australia, you might have to change a couple of references because they don't get all the local news and all the politic stories. Um, but in, in like even in places like Kuala Lumpur and Singapore, they like they, they, their English is really, really good. They've got a very good sense of humor because of their close links to Britain. And even have like even like people that are Singaporean or Malaysian or Indian, they will get your sense of humor. Um, I, I did find that it was the same, and there was a lot of expats when I did gigs in Vietnam. Um, but Cambodia was a bit different because I think Cambodia was more French colony. So you had, I had like you had a few French people in, some Dutch people, German, but a lot more than normal. And so they didn't quite pick up on some of the, the bits. But it's amazing how a shared sense of humour around the world, because let's face it, like everyone knows what's going on in America. Everyone knows what's going on roughly in, in the UK and Brexit and all that sort of stuff. So People do get the jokes. You just have to change a few references. But it's fascinating what some countries will let you get away with, like with the, those things in Colombia that you couldn't say <laughs> in the UK. And it's fascinating. I'm like, my God, that is so racist. But it's still funny. And once everyone's in on the joke and everyone knows that it's all cool, that's good. And I think that's maybe where the problem is nowadays. It's like people don't, oh, are you joking? Are you serious? It's all It's like, look, man, in this environment, we're all going to have a laugh, but I think we all have to laugh together. And you have to know that, look, you can make fun of my thing. I can make fun of your thing. No one hates anybody. It's all comedy and we're all going to be OK. All right. So, you know, but that's that's those are the differences. What would happen if you started your set like that? Listen here. Yo, so like people in the group. We're all this. I'm going to take the piss out. You're going to take the piss out. You're going to take this. We're all friends here. That's it. Sounds like a. Would people take that well here? Well, I think the thing about it is when you got when you take into account like we're all part of maybe like WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups, right? And we all make fun of each other, don't we? 
we do you know because we know in 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 essence we know that we don't mean it like i'm i've got like a whatsapp group uh and it's like friends and people that i knew from my days of working on london transport london underground right and it's a massively diverse group of people you know whether it be you know race whatever yeah and so and some of the jokes that we're saying to each other they are properly like would be seen as offensive but the whole point is we're all friends we all know that like you know some there's me and another guy called keba we're mixed race there's a guy called freddie he's black there's a couple of other white people there's someone that sets him up as you know he's a bit of a a, a, a tory party fan so we all make jokes about each other and it would be seen as very offensive but we know we're all friends and we know we get on and i think the problem is that when you start making jokes about certain things um you're like does that person mean it are they horrible do they hate trans people do, do they do they hate jewish people do, do they hate gay people do they hate women it's like well because you just don't quite know and there's that the expression i like some, sometimes use with people and certainly in the courses you've got to get people on the bus before you drive off and once people are on the bus we all know we're all in this comedic space no one hates anyone we're just pointing out the differences and having a laugh and i think that we're rapidly heading towards a place where we can't joke about anything i know people are freedom of speech and whatever cancel culture because i i would like to see people getting to a place where we could joke about anything and everything because we all know it's cool and that's kind of what happens in in the crack house which is why it's an absolutely fantastic club to play i mean it's a great club anyway low ceilings sort of like grungy sort of backdrop it's amazing but it's this fact that you've got these these indian chinese malay you've got like um english aussie canadian and, and everyone knows we're all just having a laugh you know uh, but sometimes we'll get too sensitive and start going oh do you really mean that no but once we know we're all having a bit of a laugh no one hates anyone it's fine but that's the problem it's, it's about connecting with an audience and everyone just seems so fractured and disjointed that if we come together and go look we're in a safe space we can all have a bit of a laugh let's go for it and what what sort of person so i mean what what what's what do you think characterizes a good comedy audience and what would you say is the type of person that needs to be a comic or should be a comic uh, well needing to be a comic i'd know i think a lot of comedians seek validation or attention well that's the classic thing isn't it like they they, they need to have that affirmation whatever but i, I just think that now comic comedy's opened up to so many different people and there is this career path to it and you know it's like it used to be your typical comedian was your sort of like your straight white sort of male was it but now you've got so many there's so many more women doing it there's so many again not your uh, more, more sort of islamic people doing it uh, uh more gay people doing stand-up comedy it's so diverse and then it's kind of hard to see what sort of person needs to do it but uh, lots of different people seem to want to be doing it which which is fantastic um but audiences being different and why um was that the original question about the audiences being different no but i mean carry on let's, let's... <laughs> yeah uh yeah sometimes i waffle on to the point i don't even know what i'm talking about myself but um but yeah i just think that yeah i don't it's hard to know what because i think comedy has become so much more accessible now that the good old days of you know oh the kid that got bullied at school the guy that needs attention the guy that needs to prove himself it's like everyone's just like look you've got some ideas this is how to get on stage and how to do it and they get up there and they do it and it's and it's and it's a great wonderful diverse thing to watch happening and like for example now i mean i can't say this for necessarily places around the all over the world but i think now certainly in britain australia even america there's no better time to be like a female comedian it's like we know there are sexist issues in life and uh on the circuit but like you know loads of people want female acts now and it's great to see you know how you know people don't kind of see female comedians as as this novelty anymore it's like there's so many of them around that they're getting so many gigs as people want women on bills and they're really funny and they're coming into their own and it's fantastic to watch all of this happen um and, and tell you something that is is interesting though within that diversity again a friend of mine who will remain nameless he said this was just before covid he went to the edinburgh fringe and he saw loads of different solo shows and loads of different types of people. Like, for example, he'd go and see a female act, a gay act, um, a, a black act, uh, you know, Muslim act. And he said it was fascinating that you had all of these diverse um, types of comedians. But when you actually listen to the shows, 
the narrative arc was all the same. And I, I've not really seen this myself, but it was an observation that he made that whilst comedians themselves are a lot more diverse, the way they're approaching comedy is all very samey. Like it would be like my view on politics from a woman's point of view, my view on politics from a trans person's point of view. So it was like weird how all of the narrative arcs and all the bits they were using were all very similar. It was just the comedians that were different, but the actual content in many ways was almost formulaic and similar. And I found that quite fascinating. Not done that, that research myself, but when he said that, I was like, that's very interesting. It could be true. Hmm. Yeah. Might have to do a bit more research into it myself, but I can see that working. You do see a lot of comedians now. And because again, there's not there's not that many new ideas you can have in comedy. I mean, obviously there are, but you know, it's hard to, you know, to constantly be keeping coming up with new ideas. Um, but what you are seeing is a lot more diversity. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. And I know that recently there's been talk of like there were a couple of comedians going, I can't get gigs as a as a straight white man because like women are getting all the gigs. And I'm like, yeah, so what? You know what I mean? If I I, I want to do as many gigs as possible, but if I miss out uh, because, like, you know, a good female actor's coming through and they'd rather have her than me, I'm like, yeah, go for it, man. And I'll just find other ways, you know, because men have been top of the comedy tree for so long that maybe it's time that they got <laughs> knocked off the top and, and some women came through, and that's fantastic. Um, and I just, whatever, whatever, you know, sort of like, I suppose, barriers, for want of a better word, are in your way, like, oh, I can't get as many gigs because I'm not female because... I'm not Muslim or whatever. So I'll just find other opportunities. I'll go and do fringes. I'll, I'll, I'll do different types of comedy. I'll do things online, whatever. And I think it's about finding those, those ways around it because, you know, it's good to see how comedy is evolving and changing and certain types of people are now getting more opportunities and good luck to them. And speaking of shows and everything, I noticed that you have got to do something quite interesting. You put, you, you've got a show called Shaggers. <laughs> what does that mean? Does that mean that you go to a nightclub, you pick up some people, you bring them to the show and say, right, we're doing the business. What, what, what's the story there? <laughs> well, I always have to make sure I qualify. Because sometimes I get people, like when I've done a gig, and then the compare will say, oh, Nick, he does the Shagger show. I'm like, you might need to qualify that. Basically, the Shagger show is basically, it's, uh, it started being a late show at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, which was all about just different comedians just doing material based around sex and relationships. That's it. Because you know, back back then and even now, comedy's like, you know, all about you know, surreal comedy and political satire. And anyone doing jokes about their girlfriend or boyfriend or wife or husband was like almost it's like a bit of a taboo. It's oh god, hack hack jokes about relationships. So we thought it was me and a couple of mates on the way back from Edinburgh. I think it was in two thousand and seven, uh, talking about different themed. Um, potentially doing different themed lineup shows. And I said, well, wouldn't it be great to do, because obviously, you know, sex and jokes and like that are, are frowned upon. Wouldn't it be great to do a show which is just all about all the community jokes about sex and relationships and call it something like Shaggers. And then we put it on for a laugh the next year and it was just like full up every day. It was a free, <laughs> it was a, it was, it's literally, it's a free entry show. It was full, it was like 50, 60 capacity, Every day it was full. So we did it in Adelaide and Melbourne, and then we sold loads of tickets there. Uh, I've never made shitloads of money out of it, but the, all the shows are full. And every year at the Edinburgh Fringe, we do a late show called Shaggers, and it's like full up all the time. And it's great fun. And the thing about it is, and I do joke, and I do say to people, like, you've got to explain what the show's about. And at the start, I just joke with the audience, and I say, look, um, we're going to have five Shaggers for you tonight. And obviously, when I say shaggers, I mean comedians talking about sex and relationships, not people shagging live on stage. OK, it's not people shagging live on stage. And I often make jokes about it's not high art. It's comedians doing material about sex. But that's the point. It's almost like a refuge from all of this political satire and all that shit. Come to shaggers. We're just going to have a good old fashioned laugh about sex stuff. Um, but the weird thing about it is, and I joke about it, but this is true. It may not be high art, the material as such, but. It is politically correct because I always make a point of getting obviously female acts on, trans, gay, because not only is it good to have a diverse lineup anyway, but if you're all talking about a common theme, then you want it to be a bit diverse and different, don't you? And one of the things that I did realize, because we started this and what, like I said, 2008 was the first year. And that was a time where you still, women did face that kind of, you know, thing of, Oh, female comedians aren't as funny as male comedians. But literally, when we started doing shaggers, I women would go on stage 
And because I think to a certain degree, the audience were expecting it to be loads of men talking about their sexual conquests. You put a female act on and the whole audience is like, oh, brilliant. We've got a female act on. I'm talking about shaggers. And it was the same with like trans acts and gay acts. And it was just fascinating watching the audience interact with the comedians about this show and how different within the same theme, how people can look at this same basic theme and, and, and almost be quite inventive and hilarious in different ways about it. And we just did it. We, it was literally something that was put on just for a laugh and it became really, really popular. So we just kept doing it. Uh, and then about three years later, because we had Shaggers, I started doing a show which was just for kids in the afternoon called Huggers. It was like a little spin-off because like, I'd never done kids comedy before. So I thought, let's do a kids show, okay, right? So we had Shaggers and Huggers. And again, I did it just for a laugh and then it just got really popular. Um, we've stopped doing it now recently because it's sort of like tail. It was a, Huggers was definitely a joke that went on a bit too long. But I would actually have it was funny because people would see my name on the post like Nick Coppin presents Shaggers, Nick Coppin presents Huggers, and I'd have like like parents, like especially dads, would come like up with their families to the kids show, and then they'd come up to me afterwards and go, "I'll see you at Shaggers later, mate." <laughs> <laughs> Like, yep, you'll see me there. But then on the other side of things, you'd get meet people that would like have seen me at Shaggers and then they see me taking the stage at Huggers. <laughs> I just imagine what they think it's going to be about. Um, but also, um, the good thing about it was I had loads of comedians. When we first started doing Huggers, I think it was in 2011, I had comedians going, oh, so what's this Huggers thing you're doing? Like, you've got Shaggers, now you've got Huggers. I said, yeah, well, Huggers. Got Shaggers is like a show for adults late at night. And Huggers, it's like it's like a kid's version, isn't it? It's for kids. And I kid you not, on a number of occasions, I had comedians actually say, what, like sex material for children? I'm like, no, <laughs> of course not. It's like kids. Ended. But comedians actually thought we were doing like a version of Shaggers for children. I'm like, are you mad? <laughs> but yeah, it's been, it's been a fun journey with Shaggers. And I did, again, I've done Shaggers at the crack house. Um, because what it was on Valentine's Day, I put some Shaggers Valentine specials on at Leicester Square Theatre and they always sold out. And so I started doing them on Valentine's Day all around the world. I tended on Valentine's Day to be when I started doing the Adelaide Fringe, I'd be in Adelaide. So I did a, a Shaggers Valentine special at the Adelaide Fringe. And then I had somebody do the one at Leicester Square Theatre. Uh, and then I had like Rizal did one at Crack House. I had Darmanda and Neil at Cosmic Comedy, they did one in Berlin. I think one year I had about seven or eight shows um, going on around the world on the same day. Because Shaggers, Valentine specials, they always did well, man. Great. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I'll look to getting back to doing that again when, uh, when now that COVID's coming to an end, we hope. Oh, not only people laughing, people are making love to the tune of your jokes. <laughs> well, you say that, there's actually a couple of Shaggers babies out there. And I know. There's oh more, yes, there's probably more than I know, but I know <laughs> one, there's a comedian called Eric. He used to be he was on he's retired now. He used to be on the submarines for, for years. So he did a show about being on submarines. He's got a show about it. Anyway, he came to do Shaggers, and this was, I think, an ad, yeah, it was definitely Adelaide. And he was doing a spot, and this guy started heckling him, right? And this guy was on a first date with this woman, right? And he started heckling Eric, and Eric put him down, made him look stupid. And then weirdly, because this guy was being such a dick on this first date, the woman dumped him and then got talking to Eric. And then Eric ended up going out with her. They got together and they fucking had a baby. So that's a Shagger's baby, right? <laughs> and, then, and there's also a friend of mine, Tina, in Melbourne, that she used to always come to, to Shagger's. She loved coming to the show. Um, the first time I met her, she was there with her mum, which was weirdly weird enough. But then about three or four years later, I was staying with Tina um, in her spare room and she came to Shaggers with her parents, again, with her family. And she got talking to a guy called Elliot and Elliot um, was also a fan of Shaggers. He'd been coming to Shaggers for years and they got talking at, at the Shaggers show, started going on a date. And Tina was a bit, oh, I'm not sure about. And I would be like, no, keep going. He's a nice guy. So she kept dating him and now they're together and they've got a baby. So that's two Shaggers babies that I know are in existence. Whoa, right. <laughs> and I reckon there's got to be more. There's got to be people that I've met at Shaggers or they've come to a Shaggers show, they got together or they shagged afterwards. And there's been, I think there's, there's babies been made after the Shaggers show. But the best thing about all the Shaggers stuff Huggers has now been going 
since 2011. So what's that now? 11, 11 years. Yeah. So I reckon it's not long now, and it's probably happened where kids who've come to the Huggers show at maybe the age of say nine or ten are now old enough to be coming to the Shaggers show. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we're kind of almost bringing like it's like a, a the cycle, isn't it? It's like kids come to Huggers and then ten years later they come to Shaggers. <laughs> so maybe that's how it all works. It's like maintaining your audiences. <laughs> Bloody sounds good, man. <laughs> Kind of the thing with, with shaggers anyway that's kind of how it started as it just started as a bit of a laugh and a lot of the things i do in comedy i've just started for a bit of a laugh the things that i've necessarily planned to do don't always work out but i've started things like huggers and shaggers and other things just for a laugh and they seem to have taken off so maybe there's something in that do something that, that you love that you're passionate about that you think is just funny and just put it out there and it will become a success oh that, that that's a bit of advice there listen up <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, because I mean, sometimes people try and plan too much and they've got these ideas. And but if you just like go, look, it's a bit like it's a bit like Jerry Maguire, isn't it? Don't play for the money, go and do it because you enjoy doing it and the money will come. Because if you put that passion and love and fun into something like comedy or like shows, then people, I think that kind of like resonates with the audience, doesn't it? It's got to. Because like you must look at and go, well, they're having a good time. And I think if you put that out there in whatever way, through a show, through your stand-up, through your jokes, I think in some way that's a good way to get success. I mean, you have to plan and work and do things. But if you put things out there that you just love to do and you think are fun, then I think there's a good chance they might be a success. Oh, God, that's deep, man. That's deep, Nick. I didn't even intend that to be as deep as <laughs> that, that. I didn't mean it to be that deep. But see, once again, I'm like, oh, my God, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, OK. Uh, no, I think I think that covers all of it. I think that's that's I think that's a great note to end the podcast on. That was that was brilliant. Now, oh, well, um, I, I, I hope that that that, you know, people can take something from that and and push forward in because it is it's a hard game to. So, I mean, I think that's one of the problems people have is that they get into it because it, it does look like fun and you've got to treat it like fun. But I think that sometimes people don't realise how hard it is as well. And that's why you've got to stick at it. You've got to love it. You've got to want to be part of it. Uh, and you've got to realise that it, it's not going to be easy. It's not an easy part. It's fun, but it's one of those things, isn't it? Part of, part of the, one of the great things about comedy is making it look easy, which is why some people think they can do it. Like Mr. Whatever, oh, it can be funny. Like, come up on stage, then. They come up on stage, they're not funny because they don't realize how hard it can be. But, you know, um, but it, it is hard. It's a, it's a hard old journey, but it's very rewarding when you get up. Like, some people think, how do you get up on that stage in front of all those people? It's like, that's the fun bit, man. It's the getting there. And nowadays, it's, I don't think it's ever been as hard to get gigs and, and put yourself in front of those people. But keep trying and keep going out there, keep getting up there. And, uh, and enjoying it but it is hard and you've got to be prepared for that okay now for anyone that's listening in now how do they find out about you nick and like attend the shaggers show or like attend any of your your edible shows or stay in touch with your work how do they find out about well, you i've obviously i've got a website nickcoppin.com and that's nick with no c n-i-k and it's not coffin it's coppin nickcoppin.com obviously i'm on the socials uh nick coppin comedy on facebook and nick coppin on twitter and instagram uh, I've got a load of free entry shows in Edinburgh. So if anyone is at the Edinburgh Fringe, I've got a solo show at six o'clock at Bar 50, the Shaggers Late Show at 10.45 at Three Sisters. Um, but yeah, it'll, it'll be on websites and social media. There is actually a Shaggers Facebook page and stuff as well and Twitter. Um, and I do actually have a book if you want. I've actually got a, a, a book that I wrote um, uh, throughout lockdown, which is basically like a little insight into comedy. It's like comedy stories. It's called Nick Coppin's Comedy World. And you can get that on the Amazon uh, for a reasonable price. But uh, yeah, that came about. Again, it was just like a friend that I do kids shows with. He's a, he's a children's author. He, um, um, he was saying that, you know, maybe you should write a book at some point. I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe. And weirdly, I didn't write the book in the traditional way. I kind of dictated the book because he saw me like after trying to get me to write this book, he saw me dictate. You know, when you dictate into your phone, you talk into your phone, it writes the message for you. Well, I was doing that and he, he saw me doing it. He goes, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just dictating a message. He goes, well, I'll tell you what, when you're just walking around town or out having a stroll in the park, dictate what you think is like an amusing comedy story into your in your iPhone notes. Uh, send me it. I'll keep it on file. And we've got enough stories. We'll take it into a book. So I basically did that for a, a few months. 
and then we sort of got all the chapters together and we edited them and and he sort of like published the book he's got a little publishing company so yeah that's another thing that I, I I did that I often forget to tell people about and it's just again it's it's a book with just like little stories from my travels around the world so yeah but they yeah you can get that and but yeah just looking up my name on social media I'm not too hard to find and also he'll I'll, I'll put the links in the podcast description and you guys can have a look through there but it's been a lot of fun Nick uh, guys you know where to follow Nick if you like this episode make sure you subscribe give us a five star on Amazon or iTunes if you didn't like the episode keep it to yourself don't leave any feedback or anything uh, <laughs> um, also yep yeah, follow subscribe give us a great view but most importantly uh, I hope to see you guys in the next episode take care yeah. Thank you.